New York. This is Democracy Now! Just now they boom the house uh, from the morning, booming, shooting, bulldozer, destroyed the streets, destroyed uh, anything comes in their faces, cars being bared, the Freedom Theater being attacked. The Janine refugee camp is reeling after Israel carries out its largest military operation in the occupied West Bank in over 20 years. We'll get an update from inside the camp, then to France, where thousands have been arrested in a week of nationwide protests after video captured the police killing of Nahel Merzouk, a 17-year-old teenager of Algerian Moroccan descent during a traffic stop in a Paris suburb. Imagine if that had been my brother, my little or my big brother, in the street because we refused to comply. I mean, we are not safe here. We should be safe with the police, but we are scared of them. That is not normal. Then as the Supreme Court blocks Biden's student debt relief plan, we'll talk with the debt collective's Astra Taylor about what's next. We are not going to let the Supreme Court have the last word. Thanks to grassroots organizing and public pressure, President Biden announced within hours of the decision that he is going to pursue another legal pathway, the Higher Education Act, to cancel student debt. And as the Supreme Court allows a wedding website designer to turn away same-sex couples, we'll speak to the head of the Interfaith Alliance, who says religion is not a license to discriminate. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israel says it's withdrawn from the occupied West Bank city of Jenin following a brutal two-day raid that killed at least 12 Palestinians in Jenin and one in Ramallah. Scores more were injured. It was the worst Israeli attack on the West Bank in 20 years. Thousands are taking part in a funeral procession today for the victims. Jenin's mayor lamented the U.N. has, quote, failed us and accused Israel of war crimes. The raid came after over a year of deadly Israeli military attacks. This is an injured elderly resident of Janine speaking while the assault was still ongoing. They are attacking unarmed people. They use planes and rockets. This is not supposed to happen in the camp. Nothing is safe in the camp. They dug up the camp with bulldozers. Why? What did the camp do? Meanwhile, Israel launched airstrikes on Gaza earlier today in response to rocket fire from the besieged enclave. On Tuesday, Israel's far-right national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir, called on civilians to carry guns after a car ramming and stabbing attack in Tel Aviv claimed by Hamas. At least eight people were wounded. On Sunday, Israel announced it's buying an additional 25 F-35 Lockheed Martin stealth fighter jets from the United States, bringing its arsenal to 75 jets. The deal is financed through U.S. military aid to Israel. France remains roiled by nationwide protests following the police killing last week of Nahel Merzouk, a 17-year-old teenager of North African descent. Some 3,400 people have been arrested in recent days as tens of thousands of police descended on French streets. Thousands of vehicles have been burned and homes and businesses damaged. Prosecutors are investigating the death of a 27-year-old who was hit by a projectile, likely fired by riot police during street clashes. The killing of Merzouk has thrust long-simmering tensions around racism and the French police into the spotlight. 
Imagine if that had been my brother, my little or my big brother, in the street because we refused to comply. I mean, we are not safe here. We should be safe with the police, but we are scared of them. That is not normal. We'll go to France for the latest later in the broadcast. In Ukraine, at least 43 people, including 12 children, were injured in a Russian attack in the northeastern Kharkiv region today. Russia's accused Ukraine, aided by the U.S. and NATO, of launching a drone attack on Moscow, leading to the temporary closure of an international airport Tuesday. Kyiv has not claimed responsibility for the attack. Meanwhile, Ukraine has been holding emergency drills after warning Russia may blow up the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, the largest nuclear plant in Europe. On Saturday, the Ukrainian writer Victoria Amelina died as a result of injuries from a Russian strike on a restaurant in Kramatorsk last week, which killed 13 people. Amelina was part of a human rights group, Truth Hounds, investigating Russian war crimes. She was at a restaurant meeting with a Colombian delegation. She was remembered by her peers during a funeral service in Kyiv Tuesday. It was important to her to travel to the deoccupied areas and gather testimonies about Russia's crimes and tell the world about it as much as she can. We did not only lose a writer and poet in her prime, but also a human rights defender, an honest and shining voice on the international stage. This comes as prominent Russian journalist Elena Milashina was violently attacked, along with attorney Alexander Nimov, while on their way to the court sentencing of a human rights rights activist in Grozny, Chechnya's capital. Unknown assailants beat them, shaved off Milashina's hair, and doused her in blue paint. She reports for the Novaya Gazeta, described the harrowing attack from the hospital where she was being treated. It was like a classic kidnap, like the ones they used to do. It just hasn't happened in a long time. They came, threw the taxi driver out of the car. They got in, put my head down and tied my hands. They put me on my knees and a pistol to my head. Elena Milashino was reporting in Chechnya on the LGBTQ community. Back in the United States, the Supreme Court on Friday blocked President Biden's student debt relief plan, which sought to cancel up to $20,000 in individual loans, adding up to over $400 billion of federal student debt. The 6-3 to three decision by the ultra-conservative-led court came as a major blow to some 40 million qualified borrowers. President Biden announced his administration would pursue a new path for debt relief. The so-called Higher Education Act, that, that will allow Secretary Cardona, who's with me today, to compromise, waive or release loans under certain circumstances. This new path is legally sound. It's going to take longer. But in my view, it's the best path that remains to providing for as many borrowers as possible with debt relief. Meanwhile, three civil rights groups filed a complaint against Harvard with the Department of Education, arguing Harvard's legacy admissions policy discriminates against applicants of color. After the Supreme Court ruled last week, colleges cannot use affirmative action in their admissions. Seventy percent of legacy students at Harvard are white, and candidates with family ties are more than five times as likely to be admitted than non-legacy applicants. 
In another setback for equal rights, the Supreme Court also ruled Friday in favor of a Christian Colorado web designer who refused to create websites for same-sex couples, even though the state bans such discrimination. The justices were again divided six to three along ideological lines. Liberal Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote in the dissent, the decision was heartbreaking and a, quote, reactionary exclusion, unquote. Following Friday's rulings, California Congressmember Rokana and other Democrats reintroduced a bill imposing an 18-year term limit on Supreme Court justices and giving presidents two appointments during a White House term. President Biden last week said the current Supreme Court is, quote, not a normal court, but rejected calls to expand it. We'll have more on the latest Supreme Court rulings later in the broadcast. It was another deadly Independence Day weekend, as at least 15 people were killed in a spate of shootings across the U.S. In Philadelphia, an AR-15 toting gunman in a bulletproof vest shot and killed five people and injured two boys in an apparently random mass shooting Monday. In Fort Worth, Texas, an armed attack following Independence Day festivities claimed another three lives. These came after two people were killed and at least 28 injured, including many children, by gunfire at a Baltimore block party. At least five people were shot dead across Chicago over the holiday weekend. During a speech at the National Education Association Tuesday, President Biden again called on Congress to pass stricter gun control legislation. Arming teachers is not the answer. Arming teachers is not the answer. Banning assault weapons and high-capacity magazines, extensive background checks, they're part of the answer. A federal judge has blocked parts of Florida's new election law, including a provision barring non-U.S. citizens and people convicted of certain felonies from collecting or handling voter registration materials. U.S. District Judge Mark Walker slammed the law as, quote, Florida's latest assault on the right to vote. Tuesday, July 4th, was the hottest day ever recorded around the world, with the average global temperature reaching 62.92 degrees Fahrenheit, according to data from the U.S. National Centers for Environmental Prediction. The previous record of 62.62 degrees was reached one day earlier, Monday, as heat waves scorch multiple regions across the globe. Here in the U.S., millions of people have been under excessive heat warnings in the south and west of the country. Meanwhile, wildfire smoke from Canada continues to plague large sections of the United States. Wildfires are also burning in Colorado and Washington state. The International Atomic Energy Agency has approved Japan's plan to dump over one million metric tons of treated radioactive water from the Fukushima nuclear power plant into the Pacific Ocean. The water has been in storage following the 2011 tsunami and nuclear disaster there. This is IAEA chief Rafael Grossi. It's not the IAEA decision, it's a decision by the government of Japan. If the government decides to proceed with it, the IAEA will be permanently here, reviewing, monitoring, assessing this activity for decades to come. The plan has drawn ire from China and South Korea, as well as smaller Pacific Island nations, environmentalists, and a large section of people in Japan. The treated water still contains tritium, a byproduct of nuclear fission, which has been linked to cancer. 
The U.N. Security Council voted to end its decades-long peacekeeping presence in Mali after Mali's military junta told the 13,000-troop international force to leave. Mali suffered deadly attacks from armed rebel groups across its north and central regions following an uprising in 2012. The security crisis has led to back-to-back -back coups in 2020 and 2021. In addition to the U.N. forces, an estimated 1,000 fighters from Russia's Wagner mercenary group remain in Mali. Earlier this year, a U.N. report found Wagner soldiers took part in an attack on the village of Mora last year, which killed 500 people, mostly civilian. Guatemala has begun a review of its ballots from its presidential election after the party of front-runner former First Lady Sandra Torres and her allies challenged the results of June's first round. Protests erupted in Guatemala City over the weekend after the Constitutional Court suspended the certification of the results, which put the progressive candidate Bernardo Arevalo of the Semilla Party in second place, sending him to the runoff in August against Sandra Torres. Rights groups have urged the court to respect the will of millions of Guatemalans who took to the polls last month. This is a what is clear is that the slogan of the official party, supported by parties close to the ruling party, is to manage to open as many boxes as possible that will allow them to declare the electoral process null and void so that the election can be repeated. Bernardo Arevalo is the son of the first democratically elected president of Guatemala, Juan José Arevalo, who pushed for revolutionary social reforms when he was in office from 1945 to 51. And in Brazil, former far-right President Jair Bolsonaro has been banned from running for public office until 2030. Brazil's electoral court found Bolsonaro guilty of abuse of power and fueling disinformation in last year's presidential election, which he lost to Luis Inácio Lula da Silva. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the Warren Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Palestinians in the Janin refugee camp are facing widespread destruction after Israel withdrew troops today, following what some are calling the largest military operation in the occupied West Bank in 20 years. The Janine refugee camp is home to around 11,000 people. Israel attacked what it said were militants in the camp with drone-fired missiles and ground troops. Palestinian health officials say the massive two-day military assault killed 12 Palestinians, injured at least 140 more. The head of Janine Hospital reports most of the wounded were shot in the head and chest. The Israeli military claimed it was targeting militants, but residents of the camp say they were targeted by airstrikes and nonstop ground fire. Israeli bulldozers destroyed roads out of the camp and left just a single road for ambulances to evacuate the wounded. Doctors Without Borders said Israeli troops fired tear gas several times into a hospital. Today, thousands are taking part in a funeral procession for the victims. Janine's mayor lamented the U.N. has, quote, failed us and accused Israel of war crimes. This is 63-year-old refugee in Janine, Jihad Hassan. This reminds me of the 1948 Nakba. People left their houses because of fear. Today, also people left because of fear, but also because of the bombs which target civilians and others. The Israeli army doesn't differentiate between armed and unarmed. The difference in 2002 and today is the military machines. Today, the military artillery is stronger and heavier. 
Now they use drones. Before they used Apache weapons. I was injured in 2002 by shrap metal from a rocket in my leg. But this time the military artillery is stronger and heavier. Meanwhile, Israel launched airstrikes on Gaza earlier today in response to rocket fire from the besieged enclave. Days before raiding Jenin, the far-right Israeli prime minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his ultra-nationalist government announced Israel would buy 25 F-35 stealth fighter jets from the United States at the cost of $3 billion. In response to the raid, the White House defended what it called Israel's, quote, right to defend itself. Palestinian-American Congress member Rashida Tlaib condemned the operation and said, quote, Congress must stop funding this violent Israeli apartheid regime, Tlaib said. All this comes amidst more than 450 attacks on Palestinians by settlers this year alone, and as thousands of Israelis protested Monday against Netanyahu's plans to overhaul and severely curtail the powers of the judiciary. For more, we're joined by two guests. In Haifa, Amjad Araki is a senior editor at 972 Magazine, where his latest piece is headlined in Janin, Israel's unveiling the next phase of apartheid. And in Janin, Mustafa Shittah is with us, the general manager of the Freedom Theater. He wrote a piece from Onda Weiss titled, The Gravity of the Situation Cannot Be Understated, an eyewitness account from the Israeli assault on Janine. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Mustafa, let's begin with you inside the refugee camp. Can you describe what took place over these last two days? In fact, thank you for hosting me in this meeting. In fact, during the last two days, we faced really a horrible and difficult situation by this Israel big military attack of Jenin, which started by rocks that targeted the middle of Jenin refugee camp. We talk about one kilometer. They target the people, the refugees in Jenin refugee camp. They are around 15,000 persons. They are lived there. And they target them, and until uh, under this title, they came here to clean the yard, and they want to end the concept and the idea of resistance in Palestine in Jine- through Jenin refugee camp. It was a really difficult situation for the people where they are live in uh, in a hard condition, without electricity from the first time of this invasion, without water. They destroy the infrastructure of the Jenin refugee camp and in Jenin city, and they try to enter and to make a siege around the camp to make it alone and uh, to put all the people under this attack uh, 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 by, from the first time. We consider that it's like a collective punishment against any person in Jenin, against everything, against the theater, against the, free, the trees, against the walls. They, they, they destroy the cars, they destroy the houses. It's like, as what I said, it's like collective punishment against the people already. They are stand and they support the resistance and they support the fighters in Jenin refugee camp. So it was really hard, really difficult for the children, for the women, for the old people, and including the normal people in Jenin in general. And Mustafa Sheta, why, why has Jenin emerged in recent years as such a focus of Israeli repression and attacks? What is particular about the uh, Janine uh, camp that Israel is so concerned about? 
We are live in fact in political area. I mean, all the all the people here, they are refugees. They have political identity. They have issue until this moment after 75 years. Until this moment, it's not solved. They ask for right of return. They are live in an area. It's not for them. I mean, for the refugees. The idea it started from not just from 2002. It started from long time from the first day of establish the, the camp. In, in 54. After that, the, the different resistance from the first intifada in 87, whereas the, the refugees that are involved for liberate Palestine, and in 2002, in the big invasion happened in Jenin, where Israel think when, by, by their using the hard power, when they attacked Jenin in big invasion happened in 2002 and killed the people, talk about 53 persons already were killed in Jenin, they destroyed the core of Jenin refugee camp. They think they by that way, they end the, the, the idea or the way of thinking about resistance and revolution. But they don't know the new generation already, they are born in 2002. They are now lead this resistance in Geneva refugee camp. And by this way, it's not to stop her. I mean, all the time, why Jenin? Because we are still in the same feeling about injustice. And the people here, they think all the time they must be involved in this kind of resistance because they protect their dignity and their common identity about the concept of refugee, the concept of right of return, and liberate Palestine and in the occupation. You're the, the general manager of the Freedom Theater. Uh, could, uh, could you talk about... Uh, the significance of the work that you do and uh, whether uh, your theater was targeted as well? In fact, the Freedom Theater, we are lucky because we have like a unique story. The, uh, the idea of the Freedom Theater started with the Jewish woman, her name Arna Merchamis, when she came to Jenin during the first intifada and established the childhood center in Jenin City and Jenin refugee camp. And that's why that to provide the space for the children to expression and talk about themselves. Later, Giuliano, her son, when he joined to her mother and they established together the Stone Theater in the middle of Geneva Jucam, it was the first theater in Jenin. The idea of establish already theater here, it's about find the space just to talk about the story from Jenin and Jenin refugee camp and how we can put the, the, the people already they have like real story and important story about the Palestine case, about the Palestine question in the light. So the, after that in 2002, during the invasion, the Stone Theater destroyed by Israel and Giuliano himself, he made the, his film, an important film, it's called Arna Children. It's a talk about what's the, the core of this dispute and conflict and the occupation in Palestine. Later in 2006, when we have the, the, the Freedom Theater by Giuliano and Zakiria Zubaydi, when we have the theater again, we consider it's part of resistance. It, we raise the idea and the concept of cultural resistance here, where we provide the space for a uh, create and raise the critical and brave voice here. That's important for our people, and this one of our impact work with our people, where we provide the space for the children that don't already, they have any yard or any space in, in this one kilometer to play, to game. Where, we'll provide the space for the talent from the camp to come here to be like, not just to be a professional actor, to be like social leader, believe in freedom. And here we talk about the whole concept of freedom. Freedom in the incubation, freedom of thinking, freedom of choosing. All of that, we protect that and put it in our in our uh, interest, in our focus, and our goals too. So we have this impact and they have this kind of relationship. The people in Jenin refugee camp, they consider the Freedom Theater is really important for them because already we have like this bridge between what the reality happened here and the internet 
international and the people outside of Palestine. Because we are talking about Palestine through this creative language, through theater and the performing arts. I want to also bring in Amjad Iraqi, senior editor at 972 Magazine. He's speaking to us from Haifa. Um, <clears throat> Amjad, you have said the Janine operation, the Janine assault, is being carried out in the context of Israel's, quote, mowing the lawn doctrine as a means of maintaining its apartheid regime. Can you explain? and talk about who exactly is behind it and the significance of the day before the attack, the U.S. approving um, more weapon sales to Israel, bringing their total um, of planes to uh, what I think it was, 75 attack planes. Thank you, Amy, and to Democracy Now! for having me. So, in a nutshell, uh, the idea of mowing the lawn is a doctrine that has been promoted by the Israeli military for quite a while and is mostly associated with Israeli army policy vis-a-vis -vis the Gaza Strip, uh, particularly targeting uh, the political group Hamas and Islamic Jihad and other militants. And the idea of mowing the lawn or mowing the grass is essentially this idea that the Israelis have that if there is no permanent solution to really eradicate these Palestinian militant groups, then the idea is that you're in a constant cycle to basically undercut their capacity temporarily until the next round. And this is what we've been seeing put in full force, especially uh, since the beginning of the blockade of Gaza in 2007. Now, you've seen variations of this military policy practice in many respects. But what we've been seeing in the past few days in Jenin is that that doctrine being played out in full force. I mean, this operation itself is not happening in a vacuum. For the past year and a half, the Israeli army has been focusing on cities like Janin and Nablus in the northern West Bank, where it has been actively targeting Palestinian militants and their weapons. But of course, as Mustafa was describing, this has come at the complete collective punishment of the populations over there, especially the refugee camps, very much in the same kind of methodology as what we're seeing in the Gaza Strip. And as those confrontations have escalated between militants, uh, both in, against the army and against settlements, and sometimes against cities inside Israel, that the army was coming under more and more pressure to actually go in as a ground invasion. And even two weeks ago, we saw, as you described, the first time that they returned to air power through Apache helicopters, which I believe are supplied by the United States, and then two days later through a drone strike, and basically these being the first airstrikes in the West Bank for the first time since the Second Intifada, even though they have they've of course been very much the modus operandi in the Gaza Strip. So this is that manifestation that we're seeing. This is the philosophy that's playing out, basically as the maintenance of an apartheid regime that includes Gaza and the, and the West Bank, and that this is the solution that the Israeli authorities are seeing, from the political echelon to the military establishment. I'm Charlie Rocky. Could you place what's been happening there over the last uh, few weeks and months in the context of the most extreme right wing government that Israel has had and uh, in its history and the, the the decision of the new Netanyahu government to begin to uh, accelerate uh, more and more settlements in the West Bank? I think right, we're yeah, gonna. I think we may have lost the the audio. Uh, 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 let's go back to Mustafa Sheta. Uh, Mustafa, your response to that same question: the decision by the Netanyahu uh, government to begin once again the uh, uh, to accelerate a settler expansion on the West Bank. To what degree has this contributed to the uh, rising tensions there? 
I think Netanyahu he and his government, in fact, they are really failed. They are really failed in what's going, what's happened in Jenin. And uh, I think they want to send the important messages to their people. I think it's for the, like we can say it's like political benefit there. They try to say we are still strong. We are still can control after the, the military operations happened in Jenin and in West Bank. Before that, in, before 10 days, we, we are in the same condition for two years, in fact. And they are, we, we, nothing has changed. I mean, they are still continue to punish us, to attack us. And I think this kind of policies, it's not just help, uh, not the Israel people or not the, the government, and for sure not the Palestinian. They are still in the same condition, and without, uh, we can say, not uh, without any benefit for, the, uh, for any person, any party. Uh, so uh, I expect this government will fail and will uh, maybe it will not continue. And the first day of this government established, I said, I don't expect there is something good will come with it. It will be worse and worse, especially for the Palestinian. I don't, I don't know if you heard about Netanyahu's statement and the speech when he said he don't believe in two states now. We are two. We don't believe in two states in this condition. We are believing one state. That state it will be Palestine in, in the future because all this condition it's like Israel itself, it itself now in this time. Uh, Mustafa, as we wrap up, uh, if you can respond to the possibility the Israeli government is saying that they will reserve the right to go back into Janine to continue this assault, and also the significance of the thousands of people, Israelis, who were in the streets protesting, um, but they were protesting against Netanyahu dismantling the Israeli judiciary. Were there Israeli protests against the assault on the Janine refugee camp where you are, Mustafa? In fact, I, I, I expect Israel, they will return to Jenin maybe after two days, two weeks or one month. I, we don't know. We know they don't achieve their goals until this moment. The protection, the, the protest and the, the, uh, the protest in Israel, the demonstration in Israel against Netanyahu, it's not to start from now. It's not just about what's going on in Jenin. They have a lot of interior problem, like with the Israeli law too. But I don't expect... There is something will get changed in Israel and uh, with the Israel uh, policies. The people already elect, they elect Netanyahu and the right wings. They are still a control for the uh, political scenes in Israel uh, with Ben Gavir and all these part, all these uh, wings, uh, right wings parties. So I don't expect there is something big changes in the with the with Netanyahu policies, especially he gets support from U.S. U.S. government, uh, they said they are support uh, Israel to protect themselves. U.K. government, they said the same. They said they, uh, we are support and we understand, we accept how Israel protect themselves. But in the same time, no one talk about what's happened or what's going on with the poor people, with the normal people in Jenin refugee camp or for the people in Palestine already, they fight for to get their rights and get their liberation. We want to thank you for being with us, Mustafa Shitta, general manager of the Janine Freedom Theater, and speaking to us from the refugee camp. And I'm Judd Iraqi, senior editor at 972 Magazine, speaking to us from Haifa. Next up, we go to France to look at what's driving a week of protest over the police killing of Naho Merzouk, a 17-year-old teenager of North African descent. Stay with us.
From the movie soundtrack to Athena by Generation, this is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We turn now to France, which has seen a week of nationwide protests following the police killing last week of Nahal Merzouk, a 17-year-old of North African descent. He was killed during a traffic stop in Nanterre, a suburb of Paris. His death was captured on video. More than 3,000 people have been arrested. Tens of thousands of police descended on the demonstrations. Many protesters are now appearing in court, and the justice minister has called for prosecutors to seek prison sentences in some cases. We turn now to France, which—and um, so we're going to go right now to Rachaya Diallo. Uh, Rachaya Diallo um, is a French journalist, a writer, a filmmaker, contributing writer for The Washington Post. Uh, she's a researcher in residence at Georgetown University. Her latest opinion piece in The uh, Guardian is headlined, France has ignored racist police violence for decades. This uprising is the price of that denial. Um, Rachaya, can you start off by just describing what's taken place uh, and talk about the simmering tension that was ignited with the killing of this young man? Yes, uh, thank you so much for um, telling about what's going on today in France. So what first um, initiated the, the uprisings were, was the, the death of a teenager, Nael, who was killed uh, in a traffic stop uh, by the police. Um, and what really outraged the people who are now in the streets uh, was the fact that it was capture, captured and the fact that we could hear the sound and the sound uh, could um, really, really showed uh, something very threatening to Nile and he was killed so quickly that and and Nile is also uh, it's important to underline that he's also from North African origin so he belongs to a category of the population that is over uh, policed over targeted by police brutality and police abuses so that's why people were so angry many of the people who went to the streets right after his killing were people who looked uh, like him and who some of them think that they could have been uh, targeted in the same way and and what do we know about Nael Merzouk uh, uh, in terms of, of the victim himself uh, why do so many young people of who, who are whose families came originally from uh, North Africa or other former French colonies identify with what he went through? Yes, like... Um now, uh, like there, there are figures who were issued by uh, an entity, a body, like it's an institutional body that um, is that aims to tackle discrimination. And uh, according uh, that body, which name is uh, the Defender of uh, Right, uh, if you are a young man perceived as North African Arab or perceived as black, you are 20 times more likely to be checked by the police than uh, if you belong to any other category. So that means that we do have figures. We know that certain uh, groups uh, in the population are... Uh, is explicitly targeted and they are more likely to be checked and also to be to be killed. Um, there have been a, a law that was voted in 2017 that actually enables uh, a more uh, easy and easier uh, use of firearms by the police officers. It had made it, it has had has made it easier for the police to use their their, their firearms. And uh, most of the people who who ha, who've been who have been killed are uh, from uh, you know an immigrant background if you read their names 
most of their names sound North African, African, and it sounds like they're they're the 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 they're really part of the the, the largest group of victims um, uh, as a consequence of uh, that law. And and what's been the response of President Emmanuel Macron to the uh, to the uh, the uprisings and the disturbances around the country? So um, the response before the uprisings, his response was very quick and uh, very uncommon, actually, because he said that the death of uh, Nael was inexcusable. He also said that it was inexplicable, uh, inexplicable, which I don't agree with, since we, you know, we've had figures for a long time and we know that those uh, things are unfortunately uh, unfortunately happen. And what happened first, also I forgot to mention that, is that the, before the video was um, uh, spread on social media, the police issued a report saying that uh, Nael uh, was dangerous and he was driving in car towards them. The video showed that it was not the case. So it also means that we can think that other people have been facing the same kind of situation and as it wasn't captured, we don't know what really happened. The police at the end of the day uh, issue reports that um, fit to their version of the story, but it's not always the truth. So Macron said that um, first that it was uh, unexcusable, and, but then he really had a um, hard stance uh, against uh, the uprising and he, blame, he blamed it on the parents saying that he was considering uh, sanctions uh, towards the parents who had their children uh, taking part to the, to the uprisings. I wanted to turn to Nahal's mother, Munya, who has led protests through Nanterre uh, in the, Par the Parisian suburb calling for justice for her son. In a video published online, she said Nahal was her best friend, and his last words to her before he was killed were, I love you. I have lost a child of 17 years old. I was all alone with him. They took a baby away from me. He was still a child. He needed his mother. This morning he gave me a big kiss and said, Mom, I love you. I said, look after yourself. I told him, I love you. Look after yourself. There you go. We left at the same time. He went to get a McDonald's. I went to work like everyone. One hour later, what do they tell me? We have shot your son. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? I live for him. I bought him everything. I gave him everything. I only have one. I don't have ten. I only have one. He was my life. He was my best friend. He was my son. He was everything for me. We were accomplices like you can't imagine. And this is Nadia, the grandmother of Nahel Marzouk. Uh, she is asked to only be identified by her first name. I blame the police officer who killed my grandson. That's all I'm angry with. We have the police, and lucky for us that we have the police. And the people who are breaking things, I tell them, stop it, stop it. They're doing this with Nael as a pretext. No, people should stop. They should stop. They should not break store windows. They should not ransack schools. Rakaia Diallo, your final comment. I know mayors, uh, 200 of them have just met with the president. They're very unhappy with what's happening all over the country, what you expect to see next. Uh, it's very difficult to know what uh, expected to, 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 to be seen next. I wish there was a real and profound discussion about police brutality, about racialized 
um, policing uh, that occurs in the in the in the in those neighborhoods which are the the banlieue surrounding the big cities, because it's not it has not been part of the conversation, and that's a problem. The problem is that the UN issued a statement to say that uh, France has to deal with its uh, very deep uh, problem of racism, but it has been dismissed by uh, the the French authorities, by the government, it hasn't been really, it hasn't been taken into account as something that should be dealt with. And I have the feeling that we reach, we reached uh, an inflection point with the death of Nael, but unfortunately it's backfiring. Uh, a fund has been created to support uh, the police officer who was, uh, you know, who authored the killing and it has gathered over 1.5 million euros. So that means that the country is really divided and many people don't get that the victim is Nael and the reason why he was uh, he was killed is has to do has much to do with the structural inequalities in France. Rakaya Diallo, we want to thank you so much for being with us. French journalists will link to your piece in The Guardian headline, France has ignored racist police violence for decades. This uprising is the price of that denial. Next up, as the Supreme Court blocks Biden's student debt relief plan, we'll speak with the debt collective's Astra Taylor. Stay with us. I'm so happy because today found my friends here in my head. I'm so ugly, that's okay, cause so are you Look on this Sunday morning is every day for all I care And I'm not scared, light my candles in our days Cause I found God, Lithium by Nirvana. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We spend the rest of the hour looking at the two major Supreme Court decisions that came down Friday. First, we look at how the court blocked President Biden's student debt relief plan, which sought to cancel up to $20,000 in individual loans, adding up to over uh, $400 billion of federal student debt. The 6-3 decision by the ultra-conservative-led court came as a major blow to some 40 million qualified borrowers. President Biden announced his administration would pursue a new path for debt relief. For more, we go to Astra Taylor, organizer with the Debt Collective. Can you respond to what took place on Friday, Astra? This was a baseless lawsuit that absolutely should have been thrown out of court. And in fact, that is exactly what Justice Kagan says in her dissent, which I recommend everybody read. You know, this, the ultra-conservative majority had to twist themselves into a pretzel uh, to uh, hear this case. And in the words of Justice Kagan, they violated the Constitution in their decision to strike down Biden's debt relief plan. They arrogated power to themselves and basically said, no, we're ignoring uh, the, the laws that Congress has passed. We're ignoring the action of the president. And we're saying that this debt relief cannot move forward. 
So it was a blow uh, to debtors. It was a blow to anyone who cares about democracy, because they actually relied on something called the Major Questions Doctrine, which is a made-up statutory interpretation that basically says we, the Supreme Court, can decide on anything and block agencies from serving the public good. They used this uh, to strike down uh, environmental regulations from the Environmental Protection Agency and now to block student debt relief. So it's it's a blow, but the uh, silver lining, and it's a small one, but you know we have to keep organizing and pushing it, is that Biden did announce what we've been calling a plan B. We've been saying for years and years that he has other legal authorities to cancel student debt. He promised to use it. It's called the Higher Education Act. So now the question is not whether he will use the Higher Education Act to deliver on student debt relief, but how. And it's important that uh, the Biden administration act fast because time is of the essence. And Astro, in terms of uh, acting fast, uh, isn't the problem with the alternative that Biden is uh, is proposing? The uh, the rulemaking process will take months, if not possibly years, to actually go through the required uh, steps of uh, that of that rulemaking. Yes, and and the thing is that uh, other legal experts and advocates have made clear that. They actually do not need to go through a rulemaking process. We have always been clear, the Debt Collective, that the Higher Education Act grants the president the authority to actually wipe out all student debt immediately. We wrote an executive order that we've been circulating for a long time. So, um, you know, this is something that absolutely the can happen qu- quickly. And that's imperative because we need to be on the high ground here. We've seen that the, stu- the Supreme Court is lawless. <laughs> Again, they violated the Constitution in the words of Justice Kagan. Um, so what we want to do is be fighting this reactionary Um, court on the higher ground. People haven't gotten the debt relief that they were promised and that they are counting on, uh, and that will be life-changing for people. So, you know, there is no guarantees. I think this is why this is an an important issue for everybody who cares about democracy. We're seeing all of their decisions, uh, you know, from striking down affirmative action to illegalizing discrimination to gutting environmental protections. You know, we want to um, fight them in a bold, robust way. And debt cancellation is something that is fully within the president's power. The laws are absolutely clear. Congress delegated this authority to the Secretary of Education act, uh, through multiple laws. So we just want people to get the relief they are counting on. And we are going to keep pushing the administration to do this the best way possible. Can we talk about language for a minute, Astra? Um, mm-hmm. You're using terms like relief, debt cancellation. Mm-hmm. You're not saying debt forgiveness, which is often used in the media. Explain why. Absolutely. The debt, collect- the debt collective rejects the language of debt forgiveness, which implies that debtors did something wrong, that there's a moral culpability there, that the debtors should feel ashamed, right, should be begging for forgiveness. We say that borrowers did nothing wrong. 43 million people who have student debt did it because have student debt because they pursued an education. This is something we are all entitled to as human beings. We're also entitled to medical debt cancellation because we all deserve health care. So we talk about debt cancellation, debt abolition, debt relief to get to push back on that moral framework. And in fact, what we think is that it is the creditors, in this case, the Department of Education, that should be held uh, morally culpable, that is, uh, should be blamed for the student debt crisis. So that's why we couple our demand for uh, the abolition of all student debt with the demand for free public college for all, for everybody, as well as free health care and other vital public services. And those are the public services that this Supreme Court is dedicated to blocking in an autocratic and very dangerous way. 
And Astra, could you talk about the impact of the court's decision uh, last week on uh, the uh, financial companies, especially companies like SoFi Technologies that provide a lot of private student loans? Well, this is the outcome that private loan servicers were rooting for. Um, you know, SoFi had uh, filed a lawsuit to block uh, this, the COVID moratorium on payments, the payment freeze that has been in place since March of 2020. That So this is obviously something that the private sector doesn't want. It's something that, um, you know, it was very clear in some of the lawsuits that didn't make it all the way to the Supreme Court that employers were upset with the idea of debt relief because it would give employees a bit more leverage, a bit more freedom. Uh, so absolutely, this is something that big business doesn't want. But I think it's actually important to note that a loan servicer was invoked in the, the student debt case that was decided on Friday, which is called Nebraska versus Biden. Um, and Republican states basically uh, claimed to be suing on behalf of a loan servicer called Mohila, which is based in Missouri. And that loan servicer actually distanced itself from the case that it didn't want anything to do with it, didn't participate in it. So this is part of the baselessness of this lawsuit. Uh, a loan servicer in that instance actually didn't sue. It actually... Um, uh, and yet was used as a kind of prop in order to justify this decision. Astra Taylor, we want to thank you for being with us. And we also encourage people to go to democracynow.org to see our interview with David Dayen, executive editor of The American Prospect, who uh, took on the very issue you're addressing right now, Astra. Uh, Astra speaking to us from North Carolina. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez, and we're going to turn right now to another Supreme Court decision. In another setback for equal rights, the conservative majority Supreme Court also ruled 6 to 3 Friday in favor of a Christian Colorado web designer who refused to create websites for same-sex couples, even though the state, Colorado, bans such discrimination. Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote in the dissent decision that uh, the decision was heartbreaking and a reactionary exclusion. Democracy Now! spoke to the New Republic reporter Melissa Girogrant Friday, who reported that part of the lawsuit that the Alliance Defending Freedom filed on behalf of Lori Smith of Colorado was fake. So in 2016, this website designer named Lori Smith, whose business is called 303 Creative, she believed that a Colorado anti-discrimination ordinance that protects people from discrimination, among other things, um, from discrimination based on sexual orientation, she believed that that precluded her from entering into the wedding website business. Now, she has never created a wedding website for anybody, and including a same-sex couple. So in the course of making this argument, she claimed, you know, two things. One, that this law meant that she couldn't post an announcement on her website saying that she wouldn't make these websites for any couple that wasn't in a biblical marriage that she approved of. And additionally, in a later filing in that original case in 2016, she claimed that an actual same-sex couple sought to have her build a website for them. That an inquiry, it doesn't seem that it was a legitimate inquiry, but it remained in the case. It came up in the district court ruling that ruled against her. It came up in their appeal. It's even been included in filings to the Supreme Court and was referenced by her attorneys, Alliance Defending Freedom, who are a Christian nationalist law project. They said, hey, she's had an actual inquiry. So this is a case that you know has some relevance. But before this inquiry became um, a subject of debate, it hadn't really been reported out until um, I was able to reach the person who allegedly made the inquiry. 
To see our full interview with Melissa Jira Grant, go to democracynow.org. We're joined right now by Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. He's president and CEO of Interfaith Alliance, which, along with 30 other faith-based and civil rights groups, filed an amicus brief in the Supreme Court case, 303 versus Eleni. Um, Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, can you talk about what this means? If a private company can discriminate against, oh, the LGBTQ community, can they put a sign in a window of a store that says, we don't serve gays? Can they put a sign in the window of a store, we don't serve Jews, we don't serve blacks, we don't serve Latinos? What does this decision mean? Well, it's uh, thank you for having me on. I'm delighted um, and frustrated that this is the reason we're talking. We're, we're entering into a terrible moment where a Pandora's box has been opened, and we're not sure exactly what it means. But what it does mean, for sure, is that permission has been granted to use religion as a way to discriminate against um, your fellow uh, people, and um, we're going to see how this happens. It's not in a vacuum. This is happening already when LGBTQ people are under attack with religion as a pretext. And this gives permission for a lot of bad behavior. And what we have to just say is we are in a situation which where what is legal cannot be considered moral. And what the law is cannot be considered just. And so you know, we have a Supreme Court that has basically uh, put down an adverse uh, decision, which is bad for religion, and it's also bad for uh, discriminated um, areas. Like, it could be race. It could be other uh, protected groups. Um, and we just haven't—we have to see how this plays out. But it's bad news for uh, America. And, Reverend, could you talk about the Alliance Defending Freedom that uh, backed this suit? Uh, what do we know about it, and how was it able to get the, this case all the way up to the Supreme Court? Well, this is uh, essentially a group that uh, works with uh, Christians using uh, Christianity as a bludgeon uh, to um, discriminate. They, they use religious freedom in a way that uh, it was never intended, and they, um, you know, it's a, they, they have had other cases that they have brought, and they have been successful. And so we're, you know, we're in a moment where um, the, they saw the Supreme Court opportunity, and they took it all the way up. And, you know, unfortunately, um, there was very little that uh, the dissenting justices could do, aside from pointing out the obvious, that we are now in a moment. I'll, I'll quote Justice uh, Sonia Sotomayor, who says, Today the court, for the first time in its history, grants a business open to the public a constitutional right to refuse to serve members of a protected class. I mean, that's what um, the, the, this law group has done, uh, and that's what the Supreme Court went along with. So, Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch, you are a gay Baptist minister. Talk about the religious community's response. And also, um, you supported the passage of the Respect for Marriage Act. How does this decision affect that? 
Well, I think this shows why the Respect for Marriage Act was so important, is that it, it codifies the ability for um, families like my own to be protected um, against uh, discrimination and that our marriages uh, are not to be dissolved. Uh, by the way, the Respect for Marriage Act um, it protects also interracial marriages, which um, this, uh, this, this photographer with her um, fake case uh, could also say, I don't want to photograph interracial marriages. So, um, you know, for me, this is this hits me on a lot of levels. Uh, one, it hits me as, you know, as a gay man with a husband and two children who, of course, we you know, we this is a, this is now opens up the possibility that we could go into an establishment um, and they can say, oh, well, we don't want to you know, we won't, don't want to do your portrait where, you know, who knows to what extent people will be able to discriminate against discriminate against my family. Um, but it's also really bad for religion. I have to say that because people might think, oh, this is a victory for freedom of religion. Actually, you know, one of the main, you know, I'll put on my pastor hat here, like, uh, one of the main reasons that people are leaving the church, especially young people, they cite the antagonism that they perceive the church has against LGBTQ people. And, and this is just, you know, this is just going to make more and more people say, Ugh, who wants to, ha- to have anything to do with religion or, or Christianity? And that's, you know, I think you know, for me that's terrible because it, it, it's a, you know, a terrible understanding of what Christianity is and who Jesus was. Um, uh, it, it, it's also just uh, does not reflect the fact that the majority of religious people in America support uh, dis- anti-discrimination laws for LGBTQ people. That's the fact. They don't want. You know, they, this is not just the American people at large, but also the majority of almost every religious community rejects the idea that there should be discrimination against LGBTQ people in just such a way as the the court has um, decided. And so basically the court is representing a very small and diminishing uh, uh, part of the, the public in this decision. And it, it's just bad for religion. It's bad for um, freedom. And it's bad for America. It's bad for the fabric of America. It, it disintegrates the fabric of America. And Reverend, we just have about 20 seconds left. But what should faith groups that are opposed to this decision, what recourse, uh, what next steps would you recommend? Well, you know, we, we, we need to be rallying all over the country, and we need to be standing up, and we need to be very loud to insist that religion should be a cause for celebration, not discrimination, a cause for liberation, not subjugation, a cause for a bridge, not a bludgeon. And we have to say, just because this law is now the, is the law doesn't mean it's moral. And we have to stand up and say, if you're doing this, you are, a, you are not representing a good religion. You're representing bad religion. It's very important that everyone stand up and be very clear about where they stand on this law. Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch, we thank you so much for being with us, joining us from Massachusetts, president and CEO of Interfaith Alliance. And that does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Our website is democracynow.org. Thanks so much for joining us.